0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 353, Malta's Magic Carpet Service. With the intense reduction of German planes operating from Sicily, Malta knew a slim version of peace. True, the daylight raids were much fewer, but night bombings starting around 11 p.m. were still the norm. Yet the people of Malta, the locals, and the temporary guests in uniform were trying to find ways of creating some normality. And as humans have been doing for thousands of years, the people of Malta were determined to find peace, occasional quiet, and, of course, love within the framework of this war. There were more bicyclists out and about, though they still scanned the skies for German 109s. But at least it led to more flower-picking along the trails and roads. But what everyone looked forward to were the dances on Saturday night. Of course, they were closed down at 11 p.m., generally just before the bombers came. But in those few hours, fun was had, the war was forgotten, and love, in its many forms, was pursued. One of the favorites was the Sleema Club, near the capital area, just north of Manuel Island and Marsum Harbor. As can be imagined, many new friendships were made, and previous established friends renewed their acquaintance during these dances. Suzanne Paulby, married to John Paulby, who was in the Army, tried to make it to the dances on Saturday, but his success in this endeavor was tied to the war. He occasionally made it out. Fortunately for both of them, Commander Shrimp Simpson of the submarine units there and his next-in-command, Hubert Marsham, both bachelors, looked after Suzanne when John could not make it. This three-sided friendship grew, and the men would give Suzanne sugar from their naval supplies, and in return she would give to them Malta Grapefruit Marmalade for the sub-crews when they were out on patrol. Besides their recent successes, this Grapefruit Marmalade was the only thing to have to look forward to when out under the waves. As for Shrimp Simpson, he was proud of what his men had accomplished, certainly the crew of the Upholder. But Simpson quickly figured out that staying in his job meant two things. One, sinking enemy vessels, and two, keeping those above him happy. And considering that was Admiral Cunningham, Simpson realized it was all about the former, sinking enemy ships. Besides that, Shrimp quickly figured out it was best to move post-haste when an order or message came from ABC. One such example, back in April, was when ABC sent a message that read, Kesselring has established HQ at Miramar Hotel, Taromina. Eliminate him. That was it. That was the message. And Shrimp realized that ABC's messages would always be that blunt. Here's a job, get it done. If I have to explain it to you, then the wrong person is reading this message. Fortunately, Lieutenant Commander David Wanklin of the Upholder, had honeymooned in the very hotel that Kesselring was reportedly in. As such, he was told to gather a commando squad and take out the German general. Unfortunately, Kesselring was gone before Wanklin could make a move. Despite this, the submariners were currently the heroes of the Mediterranean force, along with the various pilots. And Shrimp Simpson knew a part of this was because, like General Joseph Stilwell and Lieutenant General William Slim he looked after his men. In part, this meant setting up a rest camp for them to the north on the island, near St. Paul's Bay. It was decidedly away from most of the action, and there the men could swim, fish, and just rest, which Simpson considered crucial. As busy and as successful as the upholder and the other subs had been, the real heat of summer was coming. Shrimp needed those men fit and rested, Because the amount of time they were about to spend, cramped in a stinking, stuffy sub, didn't even bear thinking about. Ironically, much of this had been Wanklin's idea. The camp, anyways. But Shrimp was instantly on board. And the first person he ordered to the Northwest Beach was Wanklin. The man had been on the go for almost two months. And though there was still fire inside of him, he looked like his own aged father. Aged? due to stress. Wanklin was loath to leave his crew and sub, but orders were orders. Whereas First Lieutenant Tubby Crawford of the Upholder did not mind so much that his boss, Wanklin, was ordered to go rest. Crawford, an amiable chap, got along with almost everyone, so had no shortage of places to stay when in port. And being away from his boss, the twenty-something young man would get together with his friends, and together they would let off a little steam in ways that Wanklin may have frowned upon. First, they would hit a few bars, several, and in some places they would try to have one kind of each of the drinks at the establishment. One of those places being the Malta Union Club, which is still around today. Hope to see you there one day. Now, firmly loosened up, if such a thing is possible, they would then commence with horse and carriage races around the area. When asked about it later, Tubby, in typical British understatement, would say it could get a bit raucous. Whereas Wanklin, being a good commander, would only occasionally go out with his men to the Malta Union Club, as he knew his men could not really relax with him around. But it was one of those rare occasions that changed Tubby's life. One day in the spring, Wanklin introduced Tubby to Margaret Lewis while at the Union Club, She worked in the RAF cipher office. Those two would eventually marry and have a long life together. And I mean, long. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great That's yahoofinance.com. The German airplanes may have left the area, but there was still a war on. On June 24, 1941, a report came into headquarters on Malta, reporting that a fast-moving German convoy was making for Tripoli. What left headquarters on Malta was an order to the subs and air arms. It simply read, intercept and destroy. Tuppy Crawford was ordered to get aboard the Upholder and that Wanglin would not be with him due to his forced R&R. That evening of June 24th, the subs Upholder and Unbeaten, the latter captained by Edward Teddy Woodward, pulled away from Malta. If all went well, by the evening of the next day, June 25th, those German ships would be at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. As it would take the subs some time to reach the convoy, 830 Squadron was ordered to take to the air that very day, the 24th. Perhaps they would all get lucky and the planes of 830 would be able to take out the ships by themselves, but if not, heading in just after them, some RAF torpedo bombers would fly by and take a crack at the survivors. Nothing wrong with hope. Yet it was reported back to headquarters that those low-level RAF Blenheim bombers were not in the greatest shape. So to compensate, 69 Squadron was ordered to give it a go. But their job was to be there at the same time as the RAF bombers. In fact, 69 Squadron was supposed to distract the convoy while the Blenheims went in. All this was passed on to Warby, or Adrian Warburton, the Cosmo Kramer of Malta. He had already been, how to say this, unofficially bombing targets during his reconnaissance mission. Now he was being told to actively bomb, well, to go through the motions, to distract the ships for the other squadron. Still, it was an opportunity that Warby relished. 830 Squadron flew out for their attack, but not much came of it. Hence, the next day, June 25th, Warby and three other Maryland bombers practiced their bombing runs. But Warby's enthusiasm shriveled a little bit during his first practice bomb run. As the Maryland's were not made for dive bombing, Warby's plane was damaged that first go-around. Perhaps it would be best for the Maryland's to focus on the distraction part of their mission versus the dive bombing part. As ABC was in earnest about sinking these German vessels, 13 Swordfish biplanes would also be in on the attack. And the last man in the last plane would be Nat Gold, the TAG or telegraphist air gunner. The bad news was that the way he saw it, always being the last man or in the last plane, was a pretty good recipe for getting killed eventually. And it was only a matter of time before he bought the farm. The good news was that this was not to be a midnight raid they would take off at 6 p.m. So Nat had less time to think about his pending death whenever that was. Ever since the convoy had been spotted, a Maryland had stayed close by to radio in its location, and it was this plane that guided the swordfish to their targets. The first group came in, but little damage was done. Now it was the second group's turn, the one that Nat Gold belonged to. As his pilot was having trouble with the plane, previously the mechanic said there was trouble with the power distribution, Nat's plane showed up 20 minutes late, as in later than they were already supposed to be, when all the AA fire below had a chance to loosen up and bring all they had to bear. Sure enough, Nat's plane was bounced around due to the flak bursting all around it. But as if some higher power was enjoying his panic, the plane survived all the way through its bomb run. But their torpedo missed. Nat didn't care at this point. He just wanted to be on the ground and remain in one piece. Clearly, the backup plan of having Warby's four Maryland bombers tag along with the Blenheims for a night attack was warranted. But this is Warby we are talking about. So even this did not go as planned. Due to the damage to his plane from practicing earlier, the mechanics told Warby his plane would not be ready in time. But the young man was determined to go, yet he did not feel it was right to take someone else's plane. Which is when the mechanic said, well, we have another plane, but it's slow and we're really not sure about its engines. To which Warby said, I'll take it. It wasn't long before Warby's less than fully functioning plane fell behind the other Maryland's. A little later, Warby spotted a formation of twin-engine aircraft and so slid right in pretty issue please. It was only then that he realized they were Junker's 88s. Trying to stay calm, Warby waited a few minutes, the Germans did not bother to look too closely at their latest edition, and then he slowed down his plane to allow the others to fly away. Only after he was fully separated did he turn back towards the German convoy, knowing that when he arrived, the convoy would either be sunk or ready and primed for any additional comers. But at least Warby would have another story to tell, if he lived through this night. By the time Nat Gold unsuccessfully attacked the convoy, the two British subs were nearby, yet not near enough not to launch torpedoes. Around 9 p.m., the Upholder surfaced and got a front row seat as the Blenheims and Marylands attacked the ships. Then there were 30 minutes of silence but this was interrupted by a new burst of AA fire and star shells, lighting up the night sky. What were they firing at? Warby, of course. He had finally caught up to the enemy convoy. Now, it will be remembered that Warby and his comrades were to have dive-bombed the ships, but letting go of their ordnance before reaching 6,000 feet, after starting their dive at 12,000 feet. Why? Because they were to have been a distraction while the Blenheims went in even lower. But now that Warby was here, alone, there was no need of a distraction. He could dodge-bomb for real. Oh, happy day! Warby's crew did not think much of this change in plans, but Warby was in charge. So the roughly running plane dove and kept diving. Warby was determined not to miss, which was fine, but some of the crew started taking bets what would hit the ship first their bomb, their plane, or Warby. As his intense gaze made the men think, he might just jump out with a handheld bomb. Anything to sink that ship. But Warby knew what he was doing, right? Right. His first bomb landed on the ship's deck. The second bomb nearby. Which may seem like a miracle, but the real miracle came next. After dropping his bombs way below 6,000 feet, Warby pulled back on the control wheel and somehow brought the damaged Maryland up, level, and then all the way back to Malta. As for the sub-upholder, for the last few weeks, the crew began to believe they were blessed that they were special because their latest and impressive successes had come from accidentally finding themselves in the path Of an oncoming convoy. All they had to do was wait and stay silent. That was not the case this time. No matter how fast they went, the convoy stayed about eight miles away. That is, until the moment that Warby's bomb made contact. Either way, the convoy had been weakened, as two of the three troop ships had been struck. The upholder was called home the next day. It was another successful strike against the enemy. But what really gave Admiral Cunningham some relief was that the attack had been carried out by the fleet air arm, Malta-based submarines, and planes from different squadrons of the RAF. Before the war, this would have been impossible, and the various services were only getting better about working together. Why ABC felt good about this inter-service cooperation was that simply it was needed as half of his fleet was either sunk or currently being repaired. Despite these string of successes, ABC felt as if the Mediterranean was slipping from his grasp, though he tried desperately not to let his concern show on his face. Problem was, his remaining ships were needed in at least two different places at the same time, along the North African coast and the Eastern Mediterranean, as Germany had just launched an attack against Syria. Hence, Allied ships were needed there to harass the enemy's supply lines. And this was putting aside ABC's needs to escort ships, ships that kept Malta in this fight. It was bad enough that the warspite, ABC's acting flagship, had been damaged at the Battle of Crete, and it would be out for six months. Now the destroyer Janus was damaged, while engaged against Vichy French warships off the Syrian coast. During Operation Exporter, when the Allies stopped the Axis invasion of the Middle East, the Vichy French destroyers Valmy and Guipard, on June 9th, exchanged shells with the Janus. The two French ships had been driven away from the coast by shore-based artillery. That's when they ran into the Janus. The New Zealand Navy light cruiser HMNZS Leander and six other British destroyers rushed in and chased the French ships away but the Janus had already lost 12 crewmen with another 20 injured. Still trying to win the area, Euchre's Ju-88s flew over a few days later and damaged two more British destroyers, Elix and Isis. But that was the high-water mark of the invasion of Syria. Days later, a French destroyer was sunk on its way to Syria with ammunition. Another French vessel with ammunition was chased away while a third was also chased away. The French tanker, a door full of fuel, was also directed away from the Syrian coast by British shells and torpedoes. With dwindling ammunition and fuel, the Axis forces gave up on July 12th. It was all this that forced ABC to sit down and again assess what he had against what his responsibilities were. And the linchpin was Malta, Without it as a base, the Mediterranean command would be in shambles. So the question was how to keep Malta going until his losses could be made good. And that's when it dawned on him. His Malta-based subs were more than holding their own, which left available, to a degree, his older, larger subs. Hmm, perhaps. Yes, Admiral Cunningham gave the order that the larger subs would haul supplies to Malta, For now. As such, the mine lane sub Rorcal on June 12th surfaced in Malta's Grand Harbor with two tons of medical supplies, 62 tons of 100-octane aviation fuel, 45 tons of kerosene, 24 passengers, and happily 147 bags of mail. And the Rorcal would be back 10 days later with more goods. This latest way of getting goods to Malta became known as the Magic Carpet Service, and while not giving Malta everything it needed, the various fighters and bombers on Malta never had to stay grounded due to a lack of fuel, and this regular, though small, delivery of fuel dovetailed nicely with the arrival of 143 hurricanes, also in June. For the first time since June of 1940, the Allies had air superiority in the Mediterranean. That, coupled with the fact that Germany had just invaded Russia, made ABC realize now was the time to do some real damage. This made him happy, and now he would not have to fake being confident about the war's outcome. Postscript Captain, eventually, Tubby Crawford of the sub-upholder, was born on June 27, 1917. He died on June 28, 2017, one day after his 100th birthday. He was the last surviving commander of a submarine in the Fighting 10th Submarine Flotilla. As for the second sub-mentioned, the HMS Unbeaten that sailed with the upholder, the unbeaten would be adopted by a town called Hove in March of 1942. Most, if not all, subs were adopted by towns to help raise money. And just to show that the upholder did not do all the work by herself, between December 1940 and July 1942, the unbeaten sank the following, the German U-Boat 374, and an Italian sub that's name has at least 25 letters in it, so I think it's just best if we give that one a miss. She also sunk two Italian ships. The unbeaten also damaged the Italian merchantman Vettor Passani, but when damaged herself in August of 1942, she returned home for repairs. When back home, some of the crew got to have lunch with the mayor of Hove, and the crew presented the mayor with the ship's Jolly Roger flag. Sadly, this was destroyed when the Germans later bombed this town. But near the end of the year, on December 9th, there was a ceremony in Hove, and though the unbeaten was away, the plan was to have the town give the sub a commemorative plaque. Sadly, at the very same time as this ceremony, the unbeaten was reported lost. Ten days later, the Admiralty said that the submarine was overdue and must be considered lost. The unbeaten had been on her way back to the Mediterranean. But on November 11th, she was mistaken for an enemy sub and attacked by an RAF Wellington bomber of 172 Squadron, Coastal Command, while in the Bay of Biscay. All hands aboard were lost. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I'm going to try and catch up here on some people who have written to me and donated and become members, so let's jump into this. So, first of all, donations. Donations. Oh my God, you're not going to believe this very first one. Jeff Rowlings of Hove UK. Jeff, thank you so much. When I read that thing about the unbeaten, yeah, I cried, as you could probably tell when I was recording. And also, there's never been another sub named Unbeaten again. Uh, So Jeff, thank you very much. Then there's uh, Edward Koharik, um, Thomas Nolfi. I think this is his second or third in a row, and it's very much appreciated, Thomas. Um, John Hawk. Yes, I will have a drink in your honor. Several, if that's okay. Um, Jose Mata, Mark Wittenbrink, uh, Jose, oh no, sorry, Josh Hamilton, who sends his love from Australia. Thank you, Josh. Sorry for calling you Jose. As far as the latest members, uh, there's Tony Lupo of Colorado, which you may remember. He and Ryan Fairfield were on the show a couple of weeks ago because they host the Warrior Next Door podcast. So Tony, Ryan, thank you for coming on the show. And Tony, thank you for supporting the show. Uh, Robert Stokey of Manville, New Jersey. Um, Kevin Kelly of Boulder, Colorado. Amanda Carlin, who's in Cumberland, Maryland. Uh, Steven Hager of Fresno, California. Christopher McCourt, San Diego, California. Val Burgess from Sheridan, Wyoming. Uh, Richard Shaver from Athens, Tennessee. Also, Ashton, uh, is it Nutched? I don't know how to say it. Ashton, I'm so sorry. He bought two Churchill mugs, so thank you very much for that. Because of him, I had to order new mugs, but I'm not mad at you, Ashton. Um, There was a Tristan Brock who wrote a very nice email, and he also bought a mug. Thank you very much for that, Tristan. Um, Stan Favre renewed his membership, and he said, You know what, Ray? I think we've only got another 10 or 20 years for this, and you'll be done which made my heart stop. Uh, So thanks for thinking that I'm actually going to survive that long on this planet. It makes me feel better. Uh, So thank you very much to all those people uh, who have donated or become members or bought a mug or just sent emails um, or whatever messages saying that you found the show and you like it. Uh, Thank you very much for that. It keeps me going in these dark, cold days of winter. So I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. Until then, take care, everyone.